This is Medieval Death Trip for Wednesday, March 14th, 2018. Episode 51, Concerning Fire and Fury in the Palace, Part 2. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the podcast where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. Today we're continuing with the opening section of Walter Mapp's De Nugis Curialium, or Courtier's Trifles. This is Mapp's comparison of life in the Royal Court of England to life in hell. Last time we got some criticism of courtly life and complaints about the general decline of humanity, and this time we're finally getting that promised analogy to hell. In the previous excerpt, Mapp told us, In the court I exist, and of the court I speak, and what the court is, God knows, I know not. And that might be a good point to start with for today. I named this pair of episodes Fire and Fury in the Palace, uh, but that's a bit of an anachronism, because for the Norman and Angevin kings of England, the royal court is not really situated in a palace. The court is not a place. It's an organization. And even that's not entirely accurate, because... It's not the codified collection of government officers, ministers, and agencies with clear jurisdictions and responsibilities that we, from a more modern perspective, might imagine government to be. It's more like a cloud that congeals around the king as a center of power, a planetary system, or maybe just a chaotic asteroid belt. There are some officers and there are household departments taking shape in this period, and there is an exchequer and a treasury. But still, a great deal of the actual work of government, and all that really means here is the exercise of power and administration of justice among lesser powers, we're not talking about grand public works or social services or even legislative agendas as we would think of them today. Anyway, the work of government is largely parceled out to and executed by powerful men that the king considers to be his friends. And the court is this network of personal relationships. Power really is visualized in the person of the Lord and in the entourage, and is not pinned to a place. It's perhaps notable that you don't really see the throne, or even the crown, being used as metonymy for the monarch until the 14th century. Instead, you have the king, and the king's will, and the king's servants and familia. The government is very much about the individual person of the king. And so the court is wherever the king is handing out orders. And the kings of the 11th and 12th centuries spent their time in a kind of constant tour around the country, moving from manor house to manor house and city to city. That's the royal court, a thing almost always on the move. It reminds me a bit of the scene in Terry Gilliam's Brazil, where Sam Lowry shows up for his first day of work after his promotion to information retrieval and encounters his new boss as this figure perpetually striding down the hallway with a comet's tail of functionaries trying to get his attention, weaving through this labyrinth of offices in an almost Scooby-Doo-like sequence of people rushing in and out of passageways. And I'll go ahead and play a little clip of that. Uh, This is maybe a silly idea because it's a very visual scene, Uh, But it also does some interesting, if subtle, things with sound design, too. So, heck, we'll give it a shot. (laughs) 
Harvest Terror is the restless victim. Mr. Watt. Yes. Mr. Watt. No. This is facts. Definitely no. My name's Larry, Mr. Warren. Sam Larry. Ah, Larry. Yes. Sister? No. Enter that. Okay. Mr. Warren, the president would have to have you on board. Yes. Sir. No, nobody take us, Jenkins. Yes, yes, yes. You like it up here? They send that back. We've got a crack team of other kidding decision makers. No, I'm expecting big things to publish the finance of This question of the location of the court touches on the image Map opens with in our excerpt for today, in which he asks if it's reasonable to compare the court to hell. Since hell is a place, and the implication of his asking the question is that the court is not a place. Now, here I'll say I've inserted my own emendation into the text that we're going to hear. What the text actually says is that the court is a place, but then goes on to prove why it's a place. So I've gone ahead and supplied what I expect is a missing not in that syntax. The court does not seem to be a place and yet let me prove how it is one. Neither M.R. James nor the more recent editors, Brooke and Miners, actually offer this particular correction. Uh, They just note that the logic of Map's sentence doesn't seem to follow. I think adding the not makes it perfectly consistent, so I've done that, Um, but it's possible I'm misreading Map in some way. So, caveat lector, or auditor as the case may be. Anyway, after he settles this question of whether you can compare this wandering court to the more stable confines of hell, Map moves on to a point-by-point comparison. It's notable that Map's hell is a purely classical Hades. There is no Satan, there are no devils. It is hell as a literary trope, a poetic device of Latin grammar school culture, not a theological reality. Map's bullet point tour of this Greco-Roman hell covers its three most famous inmates, Tantalus, Sisyphus, and Ixion. If your classical mythology is a bit rusty, here's a quick overview of these three. Uh, Map probably would have known them from Virgil and Ovid, uh, and also commentaries on their poems, since neither Virgil nor Ovid actually go into that much detail. Homer gives great portraits of Tantalus and Sisyphus in Odysseus's vision of the underworld in the Odyssey, but Map is very unlikely to have had any direct exposure to Homer. However, the poetic justice of the punishments of these figures is iconic and would have been a well-known set of references to an educated person in the Middle Ages. In all three cases, while the punishments have become iconic, The actual crimes that led to them are a bit of a jumble of different and sometimes conflicting myths. Tantalus is said in one story to have stolen the secrets of ambrosia from the gods, and in another to have sacrificed his son, cooked him, and attempted to serve him to the gods as a meal, thus deeply offending them. Whichever the cause, the punishment is consistent. Homer gives a nice clear description of it, so I'll let him tell it, as translated by A.T. Murray. I, and I saw Tantalus in violent torment, standing in a pool, and the water came nigh unto his chin. He seemed as one athirst, but could not take and drink, for as often as that old man stooped down, eager to drink, so often would the water be swallowed up and vanish away, and at his feet the black earth would appear, for some god made all dry. 
and trees, high and leafy, let stream their fruits above his head, pears and pomegranates and apple trees with their bright fruit and sweet figs and luxuriant olives. But as often as that old man would reach out toward these to clutch them with his hands, the wind would toss them to the shadowy clouds. And so we see Tantalus suffering eternal temptation without satisfaction. Hence our word, tantalize. Sisyphus has a bunch of stories attached to him that all variously involve tricking the gods and cheating death. He thinks he's smarter than the gods. And while his successes maybe make a certain case for him, this is not an attitude that can be permitted. And so he is condemned to eternally try to roll a rock up a hill. Or, according again to Homer, I, and I saw Sisyphus in violent torment, seeking to raise a monstrous stone with both his hands. Verily, he would brace himself with hands and feet, and thrust the stone toward the crest of the hill, but as often as he was about to heave it over the top, the weight would turn it back, and then down again to the plain would come rolling the ruthless stone. But he would strain again and thrust it back, and the sweat flowed down from his limbs, and dust rose up from his head." And, of course, we refer to Sisyphean tasks today, though the mythological reference is a bit more obvious there than it is in Tantalize. Ixion, to my knowledge, has not contributed an eponym to the English language. He committed some kind of taboo murder, the precise nature of which varies from story to story, but it usually involves jealousy and kinslaying, paired up with a deep violation of the laws of hospitality that were of great importance in early Greek culture, uh, and indeed in most ancient and even medieval cultures. He faced exile from civilization for his crimes, found refuge among the gods on Olympus, but then got it into his head to try to sleep with Hera. This did not exactly please Zeus, who condemned Ixion to be tied to an ever-spinning, flaming wheel. In medieval representations, these three figures became stock emblems, Tantalus of greed, Sisyphus of pride, and Ixion of covetousness. Map does not quite adhere to these conventions. Tantalus still embodies greed, but Sisyphus is used to represent covetousness, and Ixion on his wheel gets tied into notions related to fortune's wheel, on which people are raised up and toppled by forces beyond their control, as we'll see when we get into the text. The only other bit of prefatory material we need is an explanation for some missing text. There is a leaf missing from our one surviving manuscript of the De Nugis Curialium. We know it's missing partly because the next page begins with an incomplete sentence, and because the manuscript includes a table of contents that lists the four distinctions or books of the De Nugis and all the chapter titles within each distinction. Not with perfect accuracy, but close enough. And thus we know that we are missing three chapters and the beginning of a fourth. The fact that you can fit three chapters on one leaf points out another little thing, uh, which is the way what chapter means has changed over time, here it's still more firmly rooted in the Latin capitulum, or heading. These are the topical headings that are rubriced into the manuscript, and which I'll include as I read the text today. Uh, so these chapters are very short divisions compared to modern convention. Anyway, let's get into our text. This continues the first distinction of Walter Mapp's De Nugis Curialium, or Courtier's Trifles, as translated in 1923 by M.R. James. 
Chapter 2 Concerning Hell Hell, it is said, is a penal place, and if I may presume so far in an access of boldness, I would rashly say that the court is not hell, but a place of punishment. Yet I doubt whether I have defined it rightly. A place it does not seem to be. Is it therefore not hell? Nay, it is certain that whatever contains a thing or things in itself is a place. Grant then that it is a place. Let us see whether it be a penal one. What torment has hell, which is not present here in an aggravated form? Chapter 3 of Tantalus. Have you read how Tantalus down there catches at streams which shun his lips? Here you may see many a one thirsting for the goods of others which he fails to get, and, like a drinker, misses them at the moment of seizure. Chapter 4 of Sisyphus. Sisyphus there bears a boulder from the bottom of a valley to the summit of a lofty hill, and when it has rolled back, he carries it up again from the vale, only to fall once more. Here, too, there are many who reckon it nothing to have climbed the hill of riches, but try to urge their souls, fallen back into the valley of covetousness, to the summit of a hill yet further removed. And on that, again, their heart cannot abide, for what they have gained grows cheap when they gaze at what they desire. Well may such a heart be likened to the stone of Sisyphus, for it is written, I will take away their stony heart and give them a heart of flesh. God give a heart of flesh to these courtiers and enable them to find rest upon one or other of the hills. Chapter 5 of Ixion Ever changing his posture of a moment before, Ixion down there is whirled round on his wheel, up, down, hither and yonder, and Ixions are not wanting here, turned about by the fickleness of fortune. They rise to glory and fall to wretchedness. When down, they still hope, and no day passes without seeing such a revolution. Though on the wheel, there are fears on every side, yet no one's fall from it is hopeless. All terrible as it is and full of horror, all in arms against the conscience, yet it attracts nonetheless. It draws its victims ever on. Chapter 6 of Tidius, Chapter 7 of The Daughters of Belus, and chapter 8 of Cerberus are all lost. The beginning of chapter 9 of Charon is missing, and the text resumes mid-sentence. But hunters of men, to whom judgment is committed of the life and death of beasts, bearers of death, compared to whom Minos is mild, Radamanthus reasonable, Iacus equable. They get no nearer to mirth than murder. Once Hugh, prior of Selwood, now elect of Lincoln, found these men repulsed from the door of the king's chamber, and hearing them give vent to loud abuse and observing their rage, he was surprised and said, Who are you? We are the keepers, or foresters, they replied. Said he to them, Keepers, keep out, or Forestarii forestent. The king within heard the words, laughed, and came out to meet the prior, who said to him, the saying touches you nearly, for when the poor whom these men oppress are led into paradise, you will be keeping outside with the keepers. However, the king took this word spoken in earnest for a jest, and, as Solomon took not away the high places, did not suppress the foresters. No, even now, after his death, they eat the flesh of men in the presence of Leviathan and drink their blood. 
They set up high places which will not be taken away unless the Lord destroy them with a strong hand. They fear and propitiate their Lord who is visibly present. God, whom they see not, they fear not to offend. I do not mean to deny that there are many God-fearing, good, and righteous men mixed up or entangled among us here at court, nor that there are in this vale of misery some merciful judges. It is of the larger and wilder portion of the band that I speak. Chapter 10 Of the Creatures of the Night There, too, are creatures of the night, the screech-owl, the night-crow, the vulture, and the owl whose eyes love darkness and hate light. These are commissioned to go round about, to seek out diligently and to report accurately what of good happens that may concern Jupiter, and what of harm falls to be condemned by Dis. And while they craftily lie in ambush here and there, they greedily follow up the odor of carrion. This they devour in secrecy, or conceal, and upon their return lay any accusations they please, besides what they gain for themselves in private by robbery. This court, too, sends out beings whom it calls justices, sheriffs, undersheriffs, and beadles to make strict inquisition. These leave nothing untouched or untried, and, bee-like, sting the unoffending, yet their stomach escapes uninjured. They alight on flowers to draw out of them what honey they can, and though when they take office they make oath before the supreme judge that they will faithfully and without damage serve their lord and him, rendering unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that be God's, yet gifts turn them aside, that the lambs may be stripped of their fleece, the foxes go unharmed, for they have been approved by silver, knowing that it is a clever thing to give." Now, among such justices as I describe, the clerical officers are usually found more oppressive than the layman, and I do not understand why this should be, unless my reply to the noble Ranoff de Glanville gave the true answer. He asked this question, and I answered, It is because the gentry of our land are too proud or too lazy to put their children to learning. Whereas of right, only freemen are allowed to learn the arts, which for that very reason are called liberal. The villains, on the other, or rustics as we call them, vie with each other in bringing up their ignoble and degenerate offspring to those arts which are forbidden to them. Not that they may shed vices, but that they may gather riches, and the more skill they attain, the more ill they do. The arts are as the swords of mighty men. Their force varies with the method of him who holds them. In the hand of a merciful prince, they bring peace. In that of a tyrant, death. The villain redeems his son from the Lord, and on each side covetousness fights and wins when freedom is conferred on freedom's foe. The famous poet points this out clearly when he says, Nothing is harsher than the ennobled clown, and what follows, and again, Nor any fiercer beast than a slave's vengeance on a free man's back. The great man I mentioned approved my little discourse. It happened of late that an abbot procured himself to be made one of these justices, and he had the poor despoiled more savagely than any layman, hoping perhaps to gain a bishopric by the favor accruing from his prey. But vengeance met him after not many days, and caused him to turn his teeth upon himself, and to die with his hands all benawed. So have I seen crows hung up over the seed committed to the ground, that others might see them hanging, and fear and shun their fate and they do shun it. 
Yet they whom the Lord calls the children of this world and describes as wiser than the children of light, adding the qualification in their generation, are not deterred nor afraid of becoming as this abbot, though they have before them the example of two other magnets, whom one in the same circuit keeps helpless on their beds, smitten with palsy. So far I bear witness concerning the court of what I have seen. But for the rolling flames, the blackness of darkness, the stench of the rivers, the loud gnashing of the fiend's teeth, the thin and piteous cries of the frightened ghosts, the foul trailings of vipers, serpents, and all manner of creeping things, the blasphemous roarings, evil smell, mourning, and horror, were I to allegorize upon all these, it is true that correspondences are not wanting among the things of the court, but they would take up more time than I have at my disposal. Besides, to spare the court seems only courteous, and it is enough to conclude from the above, according to the reasons here set forth, that the court is a place of punishment. I do not, however, say that it is hell. That does not follow. Only, it is almost as much like hell as a horse's shoe is like a mare's. So there's Walter Mapp's description of the royal court of Henry II and the people in it. We get a typical bit of medieval classism in there as well, uh, with Mapp's comments on the insidious effects of the ambition of lowly men. Or is it typical medieval classism? I can't recall any of the critics I've read uh, addressing this passage, but it seems to me that it could well be an example of Mapp speaking tongue-in-cheek, which is certainly something he does. Often in the book, he adopts a kind of deliberately arch persona uh, alongside other authorial voices. But he is also a person of strong prejudices and certainly has a snobbish streak. So whether we take this condemnation of the uppity rustics as an earnest statement or a satirical one is rather open to question. One of the best ways we could clarify this would be if we knew more about Mapp's own background. Is he one of the ennobled clowns, or is he one of the lazy gentry? Well, it's kind of hard to say. We don't really know who his family is, so they can't have been particularly important. But they were in a position to lend aid to King Henry II, for which they were repaid in royal appointments for their son. So he probably isn't coming from a tradesman or merchant family. Is he of the lowest status of aristocracy, and Welsh aristocracy at that, which drops him even lower in English eyes? Uh, Is he in that low status, insisting that at least he's still better than a commoner who's trying to rise above their station? Or is he one of the strivers from an undistinguished line, who's made good under this king and is mocking the dismissive attitudes of an aristocratic class that is increasingly at the mercy of these upstart clerks? Discussions of Henry's court often emphasize his elevation of the so-called new men from obscure and lowly backgrounds into positions of power. This is one of those historical facts that is almost ridiculously easy in modern comparisons to spin in whatever direction you need to to support your viewpoint. If you're feeling optimistic about a kind of populism, 
then it's a king breaking the stranglehold of the Blue Bloods, opening up the system to a broader strata, etc. And if you're feeling a bit more cynical about populist gestures, then it's an illustration of a king giving away rewards to parasites and suck-ups, a thumb in the eye to an establishment that's putting up some resistance to the monarch's execution of his unbridled desires. As for Map's position, he might actually be, with his marginal background in both class and nationality, uniquely suited to being able to hold both views at the same time, and to both look down on grasping and opportunistic commoners, and also roll his eyes at a lazy and entitled English aristocracy. Or maybe it's all a joke. There are a few other strange inversions of convention that he does in this passage, uh, not to mention elsewhere in the book. Take, for example, his discussion of the royal justices, a position he held for a year, we should remember. He's quite conventional in criticizing the judges for taking bribes. A number of his contemporaries write tracts making the exact same accusation. This criticism in all these writers is rhetorically interesting because the problem is framed as one of degree rather than any absolute ethical value. Uh, that's because it was a reality that judges made their income, a necessary and rightful income, by accepting gifts from parties in disputes and taking fees to do things like speed up the procedure and so forth. In this period, there was no salary for being a royal justice. Now, they often got rewards of land or office for their service later on, and sometimes from those same parties in the disputes that they were adjudicating. Um, but that's not paying your bills as you're going around the country on your circuit. So it was accepted that this was how judges made money and that that was okay. It only became a problem when the demand for gifts became extortive of poor people and served the judge's greed rather than his necessity. Curiously, Mapp criticizes the judges by comparing them to bees, extracting honey from the flowers and stinging the innocent. That's a peculiar choice of metaphor, since it plays off of another conventional classical image of the beehive as a perfect society in which the workers labor for the common good under the rule of their queen, or king as the texts actually say. Uh, you can find more discussion of medieval bee lore in episode 27 concerning another take on the love of Edgar and Alfthrith. But what Map is doing with bees here is like writing about the forgetfulness of elephants or the modesty of peacocks. It seems aggressively and deliberately backwards. Again, maybe it's just a joke on the inflated use of classical rhetoric, but maybe it's also a joke that's pointed a bit back at Mapp's fellow clerical writers who have not been shy about castigating the royal justices without having been justices themselves, as Mapp was. Or maybe Map is just a huge elitist. Uh, I'm probably engaged in a little bit of wishful thinking in, in trying to redeem him. All right, our riddle from last time was a long one. It went, I am honored among men, both near and far, brought from the groves and inhabited hills, from vales and from downs. By day I was born on wings through the air and happily wafted to the shelter of roofs. Then they bathed me in butts. Now I bind and I scourge and I overthrow the young to the ground and the elders sometimes, and this he soon finds who takes me on and attacks me with violence. 
he falls on his back unless he flees from his folly. Robbed of his strength, though strong in speech, he is deprived of his powers and control of his mind, of his feet and his hands. Ask what my name is, who bind men to the ground, the foolish after fighting in broad daylight. The answer to this riddle is mead, the alcoholic beverage brewed from honey and hence brought in on wings, the wings of bees, and fermented in butts or vats, and then the end of the riddle is an extended description of the negative effects of drunkenness, which is brought on by consuming too much mead. This is one of the riddles of the Exeter Book, one of our most important manuscripts of poetry in Old English. If you've read any Old English poetry beyond Beowulf, odds are it came from the Exeter Book. And I'm guessing in this audience, many of you probably have read a broader selection of Old English poetry. But anyway, the most anthologized Old English poems are preserved in the Exeter Book, usually uniquely. Um, Poems such as The Wanderer, The Seafarer, The Ruin, and this famous collection of riddles. In fact, somewhat perversely, I guess, I had it in my mind that they were too famous, too well-known, and that's why I avoided using them when I first went off in quest of riddles. But what's the worst that could happen? Some of you might know the answer. Oh no. And even then, technically what you would know is an answer, proposed by scholars with varying degrees of persuasiveness depending on the riddle. Because one of the characteristics of the Exeter Book riddles is that the answers aren't provided. Some of the riddles are pretty obvious, like today's, and some have analogs in Latin riddles preserved elsewhere that do come with answers. But some of the riddles of the Exeter Book are unsolved, or at least no consensus has been reached as to a correct answer. Indeed, the beginnings and endings of the riddles aren't well marked in the manuscript, and there's scholarly debate over whether some items that editors have presented as two riddles are really just one riddle, or vice versa. Add to that that the back leaves of the Exeter book, which contain the riddles, have been heavily damaged, leaving textual holes in many of them, and you've got a recipe for confusion and uncertainty that's lasted to this day. And now we alternate from riddle to mystery word. Our mystery word for next time is Oscar. Lowercase o, Oscar. I'm a bit late this episode to hit Oscar as a trending topic, um, but this Oscar has a connection to our next text, so I'm sticking with it. It's a medieval literature podcast. I've already missed topicality by about a thousand years. Anyway, I'll be back to explain what Oscar means next episode. Until then, you can reach us in the usual ways. We're on Twitter at MDTPodcast. And on our website, you can find more information, including references for today's and every episode. That's at MedievalDeathTrip.com. And you can email me there at Patrick at MedievalDeathTrip.com. Some people reported having problems downloading the last episode. At the start of this year, I enabled SSL encryption on the site in order to improve security, both for your and my benefit. Um, But doing this seems to have interfered with some podcast apps. I think I maybe have resolved most of those issues. But if you happen to run into problems getting the show, do send me a tweet or let me know uh, if you're on Twitter. A slight exception might be made for the day of release. Um, I'm absolutely delighted with the number of you who are downloading the show. But 
that number has also reached a point where it's starting to overwhelm my rather modest web hosting plan. Uh, essentially, you are, in the best and least malicious way possible, uh, DDoSing the show and blocking up the server on release day. That's also a problem I'm trying to fix, um, but that requires a bit more long-term financial planning. In the meantime, if you get an error trying to download the show in the first day or two after it comes out, uh, please just try again a little bit later and hopefully it will come through for you in the end. If you persistently can't get the show on your device, uh, then do let me know because that might be a compatibility issue with the security certificate. And the more I know about that, the more I, I might be able to come up with a solution for that problem. All right, that's a show. I'll talk to you next time. Until then, keep rolling that stone up the hill, and thanks for listening. <laughs>